Spiked is free and it always will be. There's no paywall, no subscriptions. We want to reach as many people as possible. But to do that, we need your help. If you support the work that we do here, why not become a regular donor? Just £5 per month will keep us going, even in these uncertain times. To do so, just go to spiked-online.com and click on the big red donate button. Whatever you can give is greatly appreciated, especially given all that's going on in the world. Thanks so much, and now, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers, and joining me as ever, we have Spiked's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, Boris Johnson in intensive care, coronavirus and China, and Keir Starmer's victory in the Labour leadership. Hi folks, I want to bring you up to speed with something that's happening today, which is that I've developed mild symptoms of the coronavirus. Prime Minister has now been moved to intensive care. He's a fighter and he'll be back at the helm, leading us through this crisis in short order. An unprecedented moment for the country in an unprecedented crisis. Who's in charge now? Prime Minister Boris Johnson was taken into intensive care this week after contracting COVID-19. The man leading Britain's fight against the virus has been hospitalised by the virus. It's raised questions about who is really in charge of Britain's effort and what it means for the decisions taken in the coming weeks about whether to relax or strengthen the lockdown. Tom, um, what are your thoughts on the situation in Britain this week? Well, I think things really kind of came to a point this week. I feel like it was the point at which British society so far in this coronavirus crisis, and there's probably a long way to go, felt the most kind of rattled. You know, I think when it was announced that Boris Johnson was not only in hospital, originally it was said that he was just having tests, that he'd actually been moved to intensive care. It just kind of propounded a sense of things almost feeling like they were slightly out of our control. You know, mm. I think f- first and foremost, obviously, because the person who is the prime minister who is tasked with driving the effort against coronavirus is incapacitated. And as you say, there are all these questions swirling around the media about what calls, you know, his deputy Dominic Raab can take, what this will mean for the lockdown, et cetera, which are worth talking about. But I think it also just kind of propounded a sense that a lot of ordinary people will have with the sense of, you know, watching those death tolls climb up every day, reaching points that when we saw them in Italy a few weeks ago really shocked us. And now the prime minister being incapacitated, a sense that this is something which is really kind of out of our control. I think one thing that's been slightly unfortunate, though you can understand why it's happened about the general British response so far, is that it has often kind of accentuated a sense of passivity sometimes. You know, the Mm. slogan is stay at home to save lives and save the NHS. And I think in this kind of situation, I think, again, you end up putting kind of more onus on, on leaders and on people to take that kind of role. Going forward, I think the things that will help us to kind of, and Brendan O'Neill wrote about this this week, is to make sure that we kind of resist that feeling of of letting the kind of fear of this whole situation take over us, because that can be quite debilitating. And I think while on the one hand, we will be, you know, willing Boris Johnson well, so that again, they continue to lead this national effort, but also finding ways, I think, to take more responsibility in our own communities and in our own lives over the pushback. Because I think the more that people feel included in this process, the less they will feel like it's entirely out of their control. You know, even if it's just in terms of helping their communities and their neighbourhoods, I think that's going to be a more and more important thing going forward so that as much as is possible under these unique circumstances, people do feel that they do have some control and some way of shaping, you know, the kind of situation that we find ourselves in. Ella? I found it really interesting watching the reaction to Boris Johnson's ill health. I mean, it completely rattled me, not least because, you know, he's not the fittest man on earth, but he's not the 
sickest man on earth. And so it did sort of bring it home. And there was that general sense, I think, among many people that the virus didn't really feel entirely real until someone you knew had mm. got it. And while we don't personally know Boris Johnson, of course, he is someone that everyone has been watching daily um, and you do feel linked to him. And so then it hits home. But at the same time, there's this kind of interesting sort of depiction of him that's been allowed to grow almost as this kind of Hobbesian figure of of the king, you know, like he is the the nation embodied. Um, and because he is sick, we all are sick. You know, he <laughs> quite simply is the only person in the Conservative Party or the Labour Party for that matter, the only person in politics at the moment who has a bit of gravitas, who's kind of got a sense of weight to him. It's difficult to challenge that, but we should challenge that idea because actually, though it would be, I think, catastrophic personally for him and his family and also for politics, if something bad were to happen to Boris Johnson, but the point that Tom brought up, the fact that we are sort of being held hostage to just going along with everything that government says, because there is no credible opposition, there's no strength in cabinet, There's you just are kind of being pulled along by this thing. And you really feel this sense of dread that if Boris Johnson becomes sicker, what are we going to do? And you do have to step back and say, that is not a good position to be in because he's not the king. And we should have a sense of the nation being able to deal with this and not just be hanging on the health of one individual. One of the things that it is clearly going to have an impact on, you know, beyond his own family and things like that, and and beyond the kind of feeling that we all feel about, uh, you know, about seeing the prime minister be be sick is, is that it will have an impact on the the lockdown because Boris at the moment is the only person with the authority to relax the rules and and those measures are due to be reviewed soon but we know for certain that the the, the lockdown is not going to go anywhere anytime soon and the, and, and that an exit kind of strategy is is not in sight um until kind of Boris returns in a way mm. is, is the most likely thing. Ella, you wanted to come in. Well, then, the, I mean, the other important thing about Boris is no one has been talking about Brexit for obvious reasons for the last two months. But, you know, that is, aside from the current coronavirus pandemic, that is the number one issue for British politics or actually for European politics. And, you know, Boris Johnson, Dominic Cummings, and maybe, you know, maybe Dominic Raab, but really the, the, there's only a handful of politicians who are serious about that issue. And all your hopes as a Brexiteer for that happening, that dream of leaving the European Union and recognising democracy in this country finally happening, does sort of pin on this one guy. And if he goes under, you know, Michael Gove, I mean, who is going to be dedicated enough to do it? None of them. And so... It, I don't think it's an overreaction to say that the future of Brexit certainly does rely on the individual Boris Johnson and the people around him. One thing I think it'd be good to talk about is is the fact that there there is now a creeping recognition in the mm. media of the social costs to this lockdown. At first, obviously, when whenever you raise those issues, people would shout you down and say, you, you know, you just want people to die if you if you question this. But people are starting to bring up the fact that potentially there is an issue with domestic violence, mental health, or that it's having a disproportionate impact on 
ethnic mm. minorities and things like that. I mean, Tom, did you want to speak a bit about that? I thought this was pretty shameful, actually. I think that, you know, it was really hammered home by the Emily Maitlis Newsnight monologue, mm. um, which um, was on, what was it, Wednesday night, in which she touched on all of these issues, you know, all of these kinds of big talking points around the commentary at the moment, and also picking up, and as you say, some of the downsides of the lockdown, the fact that it's having a disproportionate impact on people who are stuck in in tiny flats with three kids as opposed to nice big houses with big gardens as a lot of, as a lot of the people commentating and agitating for the lockdown you know would have been perched in as they were writing those articles and asking those questions of government on the one hand you think the recognition is nice that sometimes you know finally people are starting to clock this but it's just one thing that i think has been really striking about the media um during this whole coronavirus crisis is it really has demonstrated the chasm between themselves as a group of people their experiences and their worldview and the situation of ordinary people you know we knew this was true but it was just so hammered home by all of these battles over social media as to you know the specter of all these idiots you know uh, filling parks over the weekend none of this recognition that not a lot of people have outside space a lot of people do need to get out and again this kind of slow creeping realization i mean this is a question that you've raised recently fraser but you know even the questions about as you say the economy you know suddenly commentators were turning around seeing people sign up to universal credit and being shocked by all of this and yet, because these people work in, you know, what you might call the knowledge industries, because a lot of these commentators, these think tankers, these people can easily do their jobs from home, none of this seemed to occur to them, or at least it was so far back in their minds yeah. that it, it was just not something that was really actually discussed. Now, none of this is to say that, you know, we're putting the economy versus public health. These things are more nuanced than that. But it has been really quite striking that you have commentators and, you know, thinkers in this in this whole discussion um, who are turning around and saying, oh my God, this is having a disproportionate impact on people based on their living standards. Oh my God, look at the effects it's having on the economy. Oh my God, aren't we so reliant on all of these key workers? Most people knew that already. It's just kind of striking that they finally clocked all of that. You're listening to the Spike podcast. Spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spiked, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. The novel coronavirus was first notified to the World Health Organization on the 31st of December 2019, following an outbreak of pneumonia in Wuhan in China's Hubei province. Now it has spread around the world to over 184 countries. In the Western media, China is either accused of covering up the extent of the virus and its properties, or is praised for its decisive action to mass quarantine tens of millions of its citizens. Austin Williams is joining us down the line for this section. Austin is the director of the Future Cities Project and author of China's Urban Revolution. Austin, thanks for coming on the Spike podcast. My pleasure. First of all, Austin, could you tell us a bit about where things are in China and you know how, how do we get to this point? They've been in lockdown now for three months, well, Wuhan and Hubei province. Now it's opening up. So the first uh, trains left Wuhan yesterday the 8th of April, and there's a certain kind of opening up of the country. Uh, There are still some international flights, mainly for Chinese people coming back into the country, but not really for any foreigners to arrive. So there's there's two things which are happening. One is that 
China itself seems to be settling down, although they are preparing themselves apparently for the second wave if it, if it were to come. And the second thing is that there's a change in perception now of the problem, which is that the problem now becomes foreigners coming back into the country. They are very, very concerned of the second wave being orchestrated by uh, Westerners coming in. We just heard today of uh, an outbreak and a, a holding center up in the northern uh, region of China next to Russia with some Russian people have come into the country with the, with the virus. So they're absolutely paranoid of this thing coming in. So the clampdown which is physical and material in terms of holding centers, but also in terms of the way that they orchestrate social media and monitor people's lives is, is becoming absolutely total. Tom, do you want to throw in a question? Yeah, I just wanted to ask you really, Austin, about what you make of the Western discussion of, of China and its potential culpability in this global pandemic. You know, in the past um, week or so, we've seen some people calling for China to basically be sued en masse. Also, some demands that China pay reparations, both of which seem quite mad on the face of it. But nevertheless, there does seem to be settling in this kind of perspective is that given the fact it silenced whistleblowers or covered up the extent of cases or whatever, that China bears a, a degree of responsibility here. I was just wondering if you, you know, what do you make of those claims? And is, is this blame game even necessarily useful in that respect? Uh, no, I mean, I think it's quite dodgy. And it's quite surprising that a number of the people who are doing it uh, are reasonably arch Brexiteers, which is quite worrying that some people who had a liberal mindset a couple of mm months ago have now become quite authoritarian themselves. You know, David Davis and Ian Duncan Smith and, and all those. But it's, there's a couple of things. One is that I think it's quite remarkable in some respects that the, as far as we know, and much of this is debatable, but the disease was, was recognized in Wuhan in late December. And within 10 days, they'd managed to do DNA sequencing of the virus, right, which is quite you know, astounding. And that has, that information has been broadcast to the world. And there are scientists working in the UK, America, and what have you, who are in a global network who are talking to each other. We can't pretend that they aren't. And that scientific information is kind of free-flowing and will lead to a vaccine. Uh, so actually being able, you know, you can imagine an unknown virus originates in a town in China and then somebody has to spot it, recognize it, realize it's different, do the research and come up with some diagnosis was quite was quite speedy. Uh, so China hasn't hidden the fact that, you know, they, they did that. And within the first case, it was probably within several days that they released that information to the world. Now, what has happened before and how many people were infected in prior months, we, we really don't know. And only history will tell, probably. But I think the second thing of the reparations discussion is quite funny, isn't it? Because obviously, in the UK, as I understand it, they're trying to bill for 350 mm -hmm. billion, which obviously was a political decision by this government to give a 350 billion pound package to uh, lay people off. So it's a political decision by this country, which then you can impose on another country. I don't think that actually legally, logically holds water. You know, it's our, it's our fault, our problem, our decision that we decided to implement that 350 billion. You could have done it a different way. Germany has, Sweden has, Singapore has. So therefore, it's kind of, uh, you can't really hold China to blame for our own political decisions, whether they're good or bad. And I suppose the final thing, which I always think about uh, reparations conversations, is that it's the thin end of the wedge because China, uh, you know, still talks about what they what they term the century of, of humiliation. So after the opium wars in the 1840s, 1850s, uh, where Britain introduced opium to, to China, let's not forget, and um, turned 20% of the population into addicts. You know, so there's a century of humiliation where China was withheld as a British colony, in effect. And so if we're going to play that game, I think China's got quite a big kind of uh, bill 
to throw our way for ruining and destroying their mm. country for a long, long, lot longer. <laughs> you know, there's an incredibly murky, dirty history of, of British imperial exploitation, which is really kind of unspoken of now. We're, we're 200 years later, so let, let's forget that. Let's just blame the Chinese for this last couple of months. So it's, the whole thing stinks, really. Ella? Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the discussion over here about what kind of restrictions we're putting on people and whether or not we should be emulating the kind of systems or measures that have been put in place in China. I mean, you wrote this article for Spiked this week, drawing links between the social credit scheme that was set out in China, which was essentially penalising citizens if they're bad and giving them social credit to be able to travel if they were good. And you made comparisons between what's happening here in terms of the kind of very moral discussion about what is the right kind of travel, what is the right reason to go to the shops, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But I was also thinking a link that I've been making is the well-known problems in China with being able to criticise the state and have any kind of critical political discussion. And here, currently at the moment, it's, it's under a very stifling atmosphere, not just because our Prime Minister is in intensive care, but there's this sense that you really can't call into question what the government's doing because at this critical time, that would be something incredibly immoral. But what are the kind of comparisons going on here? I think the article's fair game in making the point that all that stuff that we've always criticized the other side in the Cold War for, whether it's Russia or, or China or Cuba or whatever, you know, about kind of social restrictions and denial of rights and inability to travel freely and da-da-da-da-da, suddenly, you know, we are living that dream. Um, and so there's an irony. It's ironic, and we need to be aware of it. Because that's the key thing, is to say that actually we need to not welcome it. It's not something that we should celebrate, and we need to retain our critical faculties. Here we are on Zoom, all of us are locked down. We're not forming a rebellion to go onto the street and start coughing in people's faces. I mean, there is a logic to it, and I think that there's something to be said for for actually self-isolation and, and keeping two meters distance. So there is something of a um, an acceptance, social acceptance, of this thing as being maybe the right thing to do. However... As we are locked down in our own houses, we should still retain the kind of communal social responsibility to have some critical engagement with what the hell is going on, because we are not like China, and China is an authoritarian state, albeit slightly different to what it was under Mao and Deng Xiaoping, but there are still kind of things to be worried about. What's happening in China? You know, there's a phrase which they're using in China, which is that the, the, the West or the UK is, has got a problem because it's not copying what China does. Yes. So they can't believe that we're not wearing face masks. And you might say that's a cultural thing. It's a stupid thing. But, you know, we weren't doing that. But more broadly, they're also saying that we aren't accepting the lockdown. We are protesting about it. Uh, and that's, I think, where the philosophical political difference should be kind of celebrated. Because in China, when you are locked down, I mean, you're locked down, right? And Westerners who are coming back uh, or have come back or Chinese people living in Wuhan have a little tab above their door. You know, like you used to see James Bond do this kind of clever thing to make sure that nobody opened the door. They have a little tab, and you're only allowed to open the door twice a day uh, for two minutes because and, – and, and it's all straightforwardly centrally monitored. <laughs> they know if you do it, uh, and they'll be around. That's not good, is it? You know, that's not nice. And you might say logically, scientifically, follow the science. It shows that you shouldn't leave your house. 
But when somebody, it's a difference between slavery and freedom of choice to decide whether you acknowledge legislation or not. If you're enforced to do it, or if you actually have some kind of consensual agreement that it might be sensible within a short period, those are different things. So the idea of having your phone monitored, having your lives monitored, having to fill in forms, having to register every time you move around the place, having other people on trains with mobile phone apps telling you that there's somebody who potentially has the coronavirus in your own compartment and you should move. This is kind of a recipe for actual social fragmentation and untrustworthiness than, than the kind of very rebuilding of the social fabric, which I think we're going to have to do after this coronavirus thing is over. So there's lots of things which, which are, you know, on the, in the sense of it, in the, in the general look of it, look very similar. And I think they potentially could be. But to make them different, to make China recognize that it's still authoritarian and has measures which are unconstitutional and lacking in civil agreement, we have to be able to retain our ability to criticize, to negate, to challenge, and to really put forward different ways of organizing society when this is all over. Finally, Austin, the coronavirus seems to be sparking a lot of calls for a reset in the West's relationship with China. Do you think that's, that's likely and, and should there be a reset? Well, I mean, there's going to be all kinds of things uh, different after coronavirus. I mean, as much as, you know, the economy in China, they've spent the last 10 years building the Belt and Road, the um, interconnections, global trade between China and the West. And obviously trade now with the West just ain't happening. And Chinese people are suffering. So the economy within China is going to take a massive hit. And they're going to have to reconstitute how they deal with Asia, maybe as a more local partners in trade. I think the West is obviously going to have a major recession. Some talk about depression after this is over with unemployment and the industry changing. And therefore, we may be dealing more nationally with the way that our economies are run rather than trading internationally. I don't over-egg that, but you get the gist. So I think that there will be a rebalancing. The issue about whether Trump you know, and some of the more lunatic things that he seems to be doing in dealing with this in America actually leads to a broader conflict with China, uh, that these kind of geopolitical tensions manifest themselves in some kind of forceful way uh, that I can't speak to. But uh, obviously these things exacerbate pre-existing tensions and whether it's, you know, Taiwan being a battleground for China and America or whether it's Hong Kong, what's been going on in the last three or four years, all of these things could be blown up, metaphorically speaking, could be exacerbated by you know, a virus conversation, which in, in general terms has got nothing to do with the same thing. If you look at what's happened, China has expelled all the American journalists from Shanghai. There's something more insidious going on there in terms of censorship uh, and removing people who are doing investigative reporting within Shanghai. As it happens, they've also kicked them out from Hong Kong which is an interesting extension of China's authority over the, the legislature in, in Hong Kong, because normally Hong Kong retains that kind of um, one country, two systems model where they have their own ability to democratically organize themselves. So they've extended themselves. So ironically, at the end of this like you know, five-year process of Hong Kong protests against the Chinese state, the Chinese state has actually imposed a much more draconian pro-censorship legislation than they were suspecting. And of course, everybody's locked indoors in Hong Kong and they can't protest about it. So there's 
levels of insidious potentials here, which I think we really have to be wary about. And that's why we come back to that initial conversation, which is the one thing that we do have in the West, or we did have, and we will retain, is free speech and free thought. And while individuals in China are also free-thinking individuals with the potential to change the world, they come up against a state which is very much kind of anathema to that historically. We in the West really have to retain that sense of critical engagement in order that when this is over, we can kind of move forward rather than accept some of these restrictions on our lifestyles. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher and more. And if your provider allows you to, why not give us a rating and a review while you're there? It really helps new listeners find the show. Keir Starmer was elected Labour leader at the weekend, winning 56% of the vote against rivals Rebecca Long-Bailey and Lisa Nandy. Starmer's shadow cabinet picks signal a return to the pre-Corbyn era. Notably, former leader Ed Miliband was chosen as the shadow business secretary, while a number of Corbyn allies were given the chop. So, what can we expect from Starmer's Labour Party? And what role might Her Majesty's opposition play in the unfolding coronavirus crisis? Ella, what are your thoughts on um, Starmer's win? I mean, the most interesting thing about his victory was how uninteresting it was. Um, Tom, I think you (laughs) described his speech as sort of slowly drowning in blancmange (laughs) at a time in which there are so many huge political questions at stake. It's quite remarkable that the election of the leader of the opposition is of so little consequence to so many. I mean, of course, because of the history of the Labour Party, the recent history of the Labour Party of being so roundly defeated at the last election, but also because, you know, people have been joking for months. It's been a, it's been actually a joke among Labour supporters that I know and others that, you know, oh, if they elect Keir Starmer, you know, if if this happens, because he is the symbolically, as much as anything else, the kind of embodiment of everything that was the reason why the Labour Party lost at the general election, Mm. condescending from a particular social background, no matter how much he sort of crows about his father being involved in tool making or whatever it was. And crucially, an arch remainer, you know, someone who is dedicated to that kind of Europhile politics. And so, you know, it's as if the Labour Party thinks that because of COVID-19, people have sort of forgotten the rows that we were having in December and January. So it's really quite laughable. But I mean, looking at his sort of 10 pledges, the only thing that gives me heart about this is how irrelevant the Labour Party is going to become, or I think is going to become. Because if you look at the kind of pledges that he makes on his website, you know, under economic justice, it's all about sort of increasing income tax for the top earners by, you know, a few percentage here and taking a bit there. And the point to make is for a party that would like to see itself as left wing, you've got this remarkable opportunity in which everything's been turned upside down in society 
inequality, or, you know, the question of uh, public spending, the, the way we run the economy is completely changed. And so now is a time where you could make a really strong and revolutionary case for a post-coronavirus society, which was one organised around those key workers that we've just been talking about and all those people that suddenly the middle classes are waking up and realising exist. But nothing actually has changed. I think, you know, the fact that he beat, what, Lisa Nandy, who decided to jump on every bandwagon going in this election, and Rebecca Long-Bailey, who just couldn't come out of Corbyn's shadow, it wasn't really a victory at all. In fact, I think it is part of this prolonged, uh, slow death that we've been talking about and the Labour Party's been involved in for years now. Tom? Well, I think what um, Starmer's election really represents, this is not a unique point, but it is that return to that kind of pre-Corbyn sort of dry, bloodless managerialism. Mm. I thought it was really interesting over the course of his leadership campaign, the way in which, you know, more so than usual, you had all of these kind of profile writers kind of dispatched to go and dig into his past just to try and work out what it is he actually thinks. Because he was obviously making a pitch to a Corbynite membership, using the word socialism, but in a very kind of platitudinous sort of way, and for all people tried to, you know, including Corbyn supporters who were trying to pretend to be excited about the prospect of a Keir Starmer, <laughs> you know, <laughs> leadership, especially after the point where it seemed to become inevitable as it did quite soon on, you know, for all the kind of focus on, oh, when he was in his 20s, he wrote for some obscure Trotskyist journal or whatever. It's quite clear the kind of world that he comes from, which is of that kind of liberal, technocratic, legalistic kind of world. And he's far more about kind of process and and institutions rather than kind of politics and, and principle and ideology. That's quite clear. In the current moment, that will probably help him for a little bit insofar as we are in quite a unique kind of situation. And so far, someone who can show up and talk about the detail, as he likes to talk about, and the strategy mm. is going to get a lot of plaudits, particularly from the media. Coronavirus, of course, has changed absolutely everything. So, the, you know, the extent to which his prospects are going to be like, who really knows what effect this is going to have on our politics come the next election. But I think in terms of lessons you can draw from it or insights you can draw from it, I think one of the things that definitely explodes is the kind of myth of Corbynism as a coherent slash radical project, you know, one which was built on a firm ideological basis on a strong and organised left who, you know, retook control of the labour movement. It was so clear when Corbynism came to prominence that this was something which was really just taking advantage and almost appeared accidentally out of a, in a kind of power vacuum. You know, mm -hmm. you had Labour thrashing around this big empty shell. Um, and within that, Corbyn had a level of dynamism, was able to inspire people. But the fact that um, all of these people who not so long ago the media were talking up about as these kind of dangerous reds could so easily be won over to the to the very vague project of Starmerism, I think really calls into question this idea that we've been sold for a long time, that the left was resurgent, that it was coherent, that it was strong, that it was organised, because now Corbyn's labour has become Starmer's labour pretty much overnight. And I think that really tells us something about how much of a, as I say, a kind of strong, coherent project Corbynism was in the first place. One of the common responses from the kind of establishment pundits to Starmer's victory has been to say, finally, we have a proper opposition back. You know, finally, the, the adults are in the room kind of thing. But in terms of opposition in the coronavirus crisis, it doesn't seem as if 
Keir Starmer or the Labour Party are really going to offer that much. I mean, it was really striking that at the weekend, Starmer was calling for tougher restrictions and, you know, potentially tougher restrictions on when people can go go to parks and when people can go to leave Mm. their house. So it's certainly not going to be the Labour Party that people can look to for dissent or opposition to the current moment that we find ourselves in. If I might just say one thing on that, because I thought it was really striking. As you say, I was very concerned by the fact that it does feel like opposition from Starmer's Labour, also from the media up until this point, basically just means when are we going to get authoritarian quicker? You know, that seems to be the whole basis of their of their demands on the government at this point. The fact that you had Matt Hancock come out on Mar last Sunday and make this pretty wild statement about how, you know, the measures might have to get tougher. We might have to ban people from exercising. And then Starmer's straight out of the gate net saying, of course I would support that. That's that's quite concerning. But I think in, in the broader picture, there was a poll out this week done for the Peston show looking at, there's actually a majority support now for a government of national unity, potentially. Mm. That's become a big discussion. There's obviously a whole kind of question about where is the line between putting point scoring to bed, which we would all agree with, but also making sure that you're actually opposing government policy. If anything, I think all of those kinds of norms of our adversarial system of trying to hold the government to account of opposing in all senses of the word is almost more important now than ever. Yeah. You know, these decisions are not just mandated by scientists from on high. There are choices to be made that leaders have to be held accountable for. And there are trade-offs which have to be discussed and thought about, which only a democratically elected parliament can really discuss and democratically elected leaders can make. So on all sorts of levels, I think it's really important that we do kind of restate the case of how important opposition debate is at a time like this, because there are fundamental choices about our lives, our liberties, which are being made. And I think a rush to some kind of cosy consensus, some kind of government of national unity could be far more dangerous in respect to those things in the long run. You've been listening to the Spiked podcast. For more Spiked content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.